Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm the host of today's special edition episode, NP Education Specialist Eve Roberts, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AMP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Each year, approximately 1.6 million adults are hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia. About 7% of those hospitalized patients die. It can be challenging for NPs and other clinicians in the outpatient setting to treat community-acquired pneumonia in a landscape that includes antimicrobial resistance, rising healthcare costs, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we welcome two expert guests who will be talking about the management of community-acquired bacterial pneumonia and antimicrobial stewardship. I am excited to bring you nurse practitioners, Dr. Michael Gooch and Dr. Wendy Wright. Thank you so much, Eve. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Gooch. I'm a board certified uh, acute care family and emergency nurse practitioner. I currently work as an emergency nurse practitioner and flight nurse practitioner at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, as well as at a community hospital, and then also an assistant professor of nursing at Vanderbilt University School of Nursing here in Nashville as well. And I'm Dr. Wendy Wright. I am both an adult and a family nurse practitioner and the owner of two nurse practitioner owned and operated primary care clinics located in New Hampshire. I also own a medical education company and travel and speak uh, pretty much every week when we're not in the midst of a pandemic. I think it's important that when we talk about community acquired bacterial pneumonia, that we that we're all on that same page and same frame of reference. And it's really the infection that a occurs outside of a hospital or a long-term care facility. If a patient has been in either one of those facilities within the last two weeks, it's actually not considered community acquired. And that's really because the pathogens change, but maybe even more importantly, the the resistance to the various antimicrobials change. So today we're really going to focus on that community acquired pneumonia. And um, let's talk a little bit about how often we see pneumonia, Dr. Gooch, and if you have any comments on on that. I think we know, you know it's important for us to remember that bacterial pneumonia is our most common infectious disease that we run into, both in the primary care setting, but also in the hospital setting. It accounts for roughly 25 per work per 10,000 people in the U.S. Luckily, most of these can be managed outpatient, and they're usually of mild disease, but we see those that also have more acute or severe disease that require hospitalization. Uh, Bacterial pneumonia is the leading cause of infectious disease death here in the U.S. and has a high incidence and prevalence that we need to be aware of. Absolutely. I just uh, read that there's over 1.6 million hospitalizations or so every year, and those who get hospitalized, up to 7% die from the pneumonia. And I think what's alarming, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, is when you look at statistics from the advent of antimicrobials, actually death rates from pneumonia have not significantly declined since the introduction of antimicrobials. And I think that that's probably because people are living longer with chronic diseases. We know life expectancy absolutely is higher 
than it was 50 or 100 years ago. But people also have a lot of other comorbidities that really increase the likelihood of them dying from their pneumonia. On my end, being a primary care provider, the good news is the majority of people that I treat are actually managed outpatient. It, I think the research is pretty clear that at least three out of four of folks who are diagnosed with pneumonia are managed outpatient and are managed successfully outpatient as well. And it's important for us to think about those high risk groups, as you mentioned, because some patients do very well with this and then definitely some are more challenged. So usually your extremes of age are definitely ones we have to think about are very old and are very young. And those comorbidities you mentioned, if they already have a pre-existing lung condition, whether it's asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or some other type of immune suppressant condition, their own immune suppressants for their rheumatoid arthritis or some type of other autoimmune condition, that those really challenge these patients. It's important for us to keep that higher index of suspicion for that patient who presents versus your typical patient who doesn't have those comorbidities that may have some call for pneumonia-like symptoms that we need to be aware of those and look very closely and be uh, more likely to pursue further diagnostics in those patients. I think that's a really great discussion and I think it's a nice segue into when we get into our discussion about what we're going to use to treat these folks. I think as clinicians, we have to look at those comorbidities because those are really going to determine which pathway we go in terms of our treatment. And even things like alcohol abuse or being asplenic or having diabetes, all of those not only increase the likelihood of a bacterial pneumonia, they also increase the risk of this patient having some type of antimicrobial resistance on board. And as you mentioned, it's really important from my side of being in the hospital setting to go back and look and see, has this patient recently been treated for something? And we know that luckily the majority of the infections we deal with are usually viral, but sometimes patients still get treated with antimicrobial agents. And that we know that unfortunately that one course of antibiotic can alter our normal flora and can definitely put the patient at higher risk for some type of resistance. And then we know that unfortunately resistance is becoming a problem, whether we're talking about you know the typical bacteria that affect the respiratory tract versus skin or even the urinary tract, and we have to have that suspicion. And that's why it's important for us to keep that keen idea as we work on our differentials and identify those patients who may not have the typical bacteria we have to deal with and think about those who are going to be more challenging or higher risk for complications. You know, I heard an expert on antimicrobials speak maybe about 20 years ago, and he said, and I'll never forget him saying this, he said, if we do not change what we're doing and we stop giving out antibiotics like they're candy, within 50 years, we will be approaching the end of the antibiotic error. And I think that's a really compelling statement. So I, I think that's something we definitely want to chat about as we're moving through this podcast today is what about antimicrobial resistance and what can we do as clinicians to make sure that we're using the right antibiotic for the right diagnosis at the right time. But before we maybe get into that, um, Michael, I'm wondering what you saw this year, because I'd love to tell you what I saw with COVID-19. And if you look in the literature, it's been reported out that bacterial pneumonias actually declined in the last year to year and a half. I'm wondering your work in the hospital, because I'm not in the hospital anymore. What did you see this year? That's a really good point. It even goes back to your comment earlier about life expectancy. And we actually saw our first decrease 
and life expectancy over the last year or so because of COVID. And we did encounter a lot of patients that had COVID pneumonia. And then the challenge was differentiating, is this truly just a viral pneumonia versus this a bacterial pneumonia? And just like we saw with influenza, there was a significant drop in our typical pathogens. And most of these patients had viral processes, luckily, and not bacterial, which kind of made them more challenging to treat. And we had to kind of differentiate and use our diagnostics and look at our history and decide, is this patient really to be treated with antibiotics or can we just watch and wait? Because we know that when we throw in uh, antimicrobial agents to the mixture, we sometimes are going to create more problems than we are to benefit that patient. It's become challenging in that area. And we may use labs like procalcitonin or using our other diagnostics to help us with that. But still, it's going to be a challenge. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to continue for a little while. We outpatient had very little bacterial pneumonia and the bacterial pneumonia we did see was just a handful of cases after COVID. And I think that, you know, differentiating, certainly you've got some of those tools that you can use, the procalcitonin, the serum lactate. On an outpatient basis, we don't really have access to those in a real timely manner. So it really does making make it difficult to differentiate out viral versus bacterial reliably that is but i i was just reading an article over the last couple of days on covid19 and it's estimated that only 10 percent of all post-covid pneumonias were actually bacterial and that there really is no recommendation at this point for any type of empiric antimicrobial therapy for the person who has covid19 is that what you're doing at Vanderbilt, where you are? I mean, are you seeing people throw these folks on prophylactic or kind of that empiric antimicrobial with COVID? Or are you just seeing people hold off until it's pretty confirmed that it's bacterial? Unfortunately, initially, when it first started, we were seeing that where patients would come into the ED, they're being evaluated and like, oh, yes, I saw my PCP. And they went in and put them on an azithromycin pack and a dose of steroids. And like, is there a benefit here or not? And probably for most of those patients, it wasn't. I think over time, that's gotten a little better as the evidence has rolled out, as there's been a lot of, you know, education to us as providers and clinicians to say, hey, just because they have a pneumonia, we've got to look at this differential and knowing that, hey, giving them some azithromycin may not be beneficial and actually could be harmful. And I think the instance of what I've seen with that has decreased, but we still encounter it. Uh, actually, my brother-in-law just recently was diagnosed with COVID and his primary care put him on dexamethasone and azithromycin for it when it was purely just a viral process. And I guess that's what's really hard is that I think that the evidence is very clear that giving corticosteroids on an outpatient basis has actually not been proven to be beneficial. And in some of the studies has actually been shown to be harmful. And did you just see that article? I'm wondering if you maybe saw it where it was a randomized controlled placebo controlled trial where they randomized folks with COVID to azithromycin versus placebo. And there was actually no improvement in outcomes in patients who were treated with prophylactic or empiric azithromycin. So it really does make the case about the importance of evidence-based practice and just really staying up with the literature. And I get it. When COVID first came out, none of us really knew what we were supposed to be doing. And we were following these kind of anecdotal reports. But I think we're a year and a half into this now. And the literature is pretty darn clear. And lots of guidelines have come out that dexamethasone is not indicated unless they're having an asthma or a COPD exacerbation that corticosteroids are actually not beneficial on an outpatient basis. 
we know exactly that study you just mentioned. There's been several others that have really demonstrated that unless there's severe disease or other problems, that the best thing for most of these patients is watch and wait, supportive care, you know, focusing on hydration and monitoring their oxygen level. And, you know, luckily now a lot of places we have the ability to send people home with a pulse ox so they can continually watch their saturations. And that's all they need unless they really need to come in for severe disease. And we always have to think about the concern. Could they potentially develop that bacterial pneumonia post-infection? And as you mentioned earlier, that instance is pretty low. And that just throwing in antimicrobials to the mix is not always the best thing because besides the typical side effects that we get from those, now we've got to worry about the risk for more resistance. Absolutely. Let's talk about the changes in the community acquired pneumonia guidelines. So I know that you and I both recently did a lecture on this and we, we know that over the last year and a half or so, there's been some significant changes to the guidelines for the management of patients with community acquired pneumonia. Why did they change the guidelines and what are they, what are they reflective of now? And, and what is your thought on them? So that's a really important thing to mention is, you know, our bacteria hasn't changed in the way of what they are, that we still typically see our strep pneumonia, our H flu, maybe even our atypicals like Legionella or uh, Mycoplasma. But we've changed the bacteria. We've also changed the population. And then if you especially look at resistance and look back 10, 15 years ago, you know, most every community acquired pneumonia would get treated with a macrolide. It was very effective. But due to overuse, now we've developed such significant resistance. And looking at most of the regional data uh, in most of the regions around the U.S., that it's more than 25%. And we know that when we reach a 25% threshold, anything above that, that class is really no longer effective due to resistance. But we know that when the resistance goes over 25%, now we've got such significant resistance that that class is probably no longer effective against those organisms. And we have to change our guidelines, just like everything else. We've got to look at this every year, every couple of years to look at the data that's out there, whether we're looking at regional resistance or national stuff or antibiograms. And we've got to keep up with what the bugs are because the bugs are smart and they learn and we've got to learn just like them so that we can change our treatment plan and hopefully decrease the resistance and be able to treat these patients effectively. As you mentioned earlier, there's not a lot of new antibiotics out there. If you look at most of the new drug applications, they're not for antimicrobials, rather for other things. And so we're not getting a lot of new agents and we really need to protect the ones that we have and use for those for those people that really need them. I think that's an awesome discussion. And I was looking back at some lectures that I've done over the last 20 or so years. And there was a day, Michael, where I used to say when I spoke that Streptococcus pneumoniae was responsible for up to 90 to 95% of all community acquired pneumonia. That number's now down to 5 to 15%. So what's driving that? Well, I think one of the biggest drivers is really the vaccines that we've started to use. And many of you may remember, we used to immunize babies with PCV7. We then expanded it to PCV13. We then expanded it into the adult arena. But the studies are very clear. When we give babies pneumococcal protection, that the strains that are found in those vaccines, actually there's less of those circulating strains in our patients who are 65 and older. So by immunizing babies, what we do is we keep those babies from colonizing and passing those bacteria on to grandma, grandpa, etc. So while strep pneumonia continues to be one of the most virulent 
bacteria causing pneumonia, it's still the leading cause of bacterial pneumonia death, the, its prevalence has really, really dropped off, which is great because it's a bacteria that makes people the sickest. It's the least likely to go away on its own. And it's a real big player. I mean, it can make people incredibly sick. And then the other thing that I think is really important to mention is, is looking at the top seven causes of community-acquired pneumonia, and only one of them now is a bacteria, and that's Streptococcus pneumoniae. The others are all human rhinovirus, influenza A and B, human metanumovirus, RSV, parainfluenza, coronavirus. It's only strep pneumo that is in the top seven leading causes of community-acquired pneumonia from a bacterial perspective. So those pathogens are really, really changing. And I think what that means for all of us is our prescribing needs to change with it as well. And Wendy, you made a really good point about that. The vaccines have really changed many areas of what we do in healthcare, and especially for here. And I still love to go back to my favorite meme that, you know, what do vaccines cause? Adults. That whether we're talking about these problems or other problems, that, you know, not every medication is perfect, not every vaccine is perfect, but we know that immunizing the population definitely decreases the incidence. And as you said, maybe it's not the young person who gets it, but we want to keep them from giving it to that older person, that immunocompromised person who's going to have a more challenge with it. the same thing we deal with COVID-19 is trying to slow that spread and decrease that risk of exposure to those people that are higher risk. And I just saw that PCV15 has just been FDA approved and we're waiting on a PPSV25 coming onto the market. So I think the more strains we can protect these folks from colonizing with, I think we're going to continue to see a drop off in the the amount of strep pneumo in the community, which I think is real good because strep pneumo is also one of the biggest pathogens where we're seeing that resistance change. And do you remember years ago when we used to use amoxicillin for acute otitis media and we'd give these kids 40 mg per kilo per day? Well, now we're using 90. And we're using that because of the increasing strep pneumo resistance. And we have to have that higher concentration of antimicrobial to saturate those mutated or altered binding sites. So anything I think we can do to reduce the prevalence of or the pathogens, the bacterial pathogens, I think is a real good thing. That's definitely correct. And, you know, we see things that change and evolve. And, you know, we may be doing something today that we're going to change in six months or a year, depending on what the new evidence and science does. And it's really important for us as clinicians to stay up to date as much as possible. We've got to review. And hopefully we, you know, are associated with an institution that can help us do that because there's no way we can keep up to date on everything. But really, those patients that are, we see a lot of, it's important. And luckily, most of our states, along with the CDC and our hospitals, are really good at sharing that information with us. And, since I work in a hospital setting, I have my antibiogram for the hospital, which is really helpful. And even some areas, we may see the antibiogram even more specific for just my ICU population. And if you don't work in a hospital-based system, your state has one or your region has one, and the CDC has them as well. And that can really help you determine that, hey, my most likely organism here is this, and I need to use this class of antibiotics. And as you mentioned, we may have to change the dosage, change the frequency. And as we will talk about a little bit also, just the duration of therapy itself. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's start with that person who has community-acquired pneumonia, no comorbidities. The latest guidelines say 
And please jump in here if I say anything or you want to add in. But the latest guidelines say if they're otherwise well, no comorbidities, the three antimicrobials that we should be using is amoxicillin, a gram three times a day, a macrolide, such as azith, clary. But don't the guidelines say this? If the antimicrobial resistance rates of strep pneumo to exceed 20%. So if strep pneumo resistance to a macrolide is over 20%, a macrolide shouldn't be used. Is that is that correct for that younger, healthier individual? It is. It's definitely, it's important for us to look at those because we know that once they reach that 20, 25% threshold, we're probably likely not going to get good coverage in dealing with a resistant organism. So for most of my patients, it's going to be either the amox, as you mentioned, or doxycycline. And doxy is a really good option. It tends to cause some GI distress, but it's not as bad as some of the others. And it's usually well tolerated and it's fairly inexpensive as long with amoxicillin also. Absolutely. Now, those older folks, right, or those with comorbidities, this is where the pathogens are a little bit different, but more importantly, right, the resistance is different. So for those individuals, you've got your respiratory fluoroquinolones, and we know what the FDA has come out to say about those, spontaneous tendon rupture, tendonitis, aortic aneurysm, aortic dissection. So I think what we're really trying to do is look for alternatives and we can talk a little bit about some of the newer agents. I think uh, you've been you've seen those newer agents being used in place of the fluoroquinolones. And then I think the other option is combination therapy, right? With a macrolide or doxy plus high dose amoxclav to to give you that DRSP coverage as well as the atypicals and the gram negative pathogens. You're exactly right there. And so with our older patients, our immunocompromised patients, or those with comorbidities, we usually need to have a little bit stronger goal. And for years, it was a respiratory quinolones. And now there's really very few reasons I would pick a respiratory quinolone because there's usually something else unless they're allergic to everything else or it's contraindicated because of something else. And that you like to mention, combination therapy is really good. So take our typical patients that I admit to the hospital with a community-acquired pneumonia. We're probably going to treat them with a cephalosporin and a macrolide which is going to give us good coverage for both our typicals and our atypicals. And we know that there might be some resistance there, but when we combine those two agents with different mechanisms of action, we're probably going to get better coverage. Or as you mentioned, going with a higher dose of moxicillin. And then also it's important to look back, has this patient recently been treated, as I mentioned earlier, if they were treated three months ago for an otitis media and now they've got a pneumonia, then likely we're talking, really thinking about this probably is a resistant organism. I need to have that beta-lactamage coverage like we get when we throw in some oscillin with clavulan 8, or we go into something more potent, but we've got to think about that those patients may benefit from two drugs. I think you made a good point earlier where you, where you were talking about, let's give them the right dose, right? Let's give them that appropriate dose, but let's get in and get out quickly. I remember a day where everyone with pneumonia got treated 10 to 14 days. That's no longer the case. What we're doing outpatient is we're treating people for five to seven days. As long as they are afebrile, at least 48 hours from their last dose, they can stop it as long as they're clinically improving and they're afebrile. So there are many patients where we're treating for five days for a community-acquired pneumonia. That's really important. And we've seen that not only with this, but just other types of infections, whether it's urinary tract or it's uh, ENT, that for most patients, probably a five to seven day course is enough. And like you said, as long as they're showing 
improvement they've been clinically better for 24 to 48 hours that probably a short course is just as good as a longer course it tends to reduce side effects and also tends to improve compliance because getting somebody to take a pill twice a day for seven days it can be challenging if they only have to do it for five days versus 10 or 14 that tends to improve the compliance as well especially if they're having some of the side effects which usually is gi in most people just a little nausea or vomiting or sometimes some diarrhea I think, Michael, it was about maybe 10 years ago or eight years ago now that the World Health Organization gave hundreds of millions of dollars to different pharmaceutical companies to begin trying to develop new antimicrobials. Because I think the writing was on the wall that a lot of what we had available was it was becoming increasingly ineffective due to antimicrobial resistance. And over the last couple of years, we've seen some newer agents hit hit the market, right? And a lot of times we'll see these agents kind of start out in the hospital in an IV form, but they're also now available in an oral formulation. So maybe for people who are listening, maybe we could talk about some of these newer agents, like the newer tetracycline agent or the Lefamulin product. Can Do you have any experience with those? And can you chime in a little bit on some of those newer agents and where you're seeing them being positioned? Most definitely. So lefamulin, as you mentioned, is one of our newer agents and actually works kind of similar to what we saw with our macrolides and our quinolones. But one of the nice things is, is it's the way its mechanism action works. It doesn't have that risk for cross resistance. So even if we're dealing with a type of organism that is resistant to our typical things, this agent may still be able to be effective. Um, so lefamulin is going to work against protein synthesis. So it tends to be bacterial static, but in vitro we've actually seen it be bacterial cytal against some of our organisms as well. And especially now that we've got all these increased warnings and big reasons of not to use our quinolones, that may be a good agent. It can be given both intravenously or oral. And the recommendations probably, especially in the hospitalized patient, start out with a a two or three day course of IV and then transition them over to oral agents. But definitely the patient who is either uh, allergic, we see a lot of those patients that have multiple drug allergies. One of the nice things about lefamulin is it doesn't require renal dosing. And for some of our patients, that's really a big concern because a lot of our antimicrobial agents are renal uh, risky, especially our quinolones were one of those. And then we have to really watch their GFR. And if I have an agent that I don't have to worry about that, that's a big thing for me because now that's one less thing I have to monitor or worry about that complication. And I think on an outpatient basis, it is also available in an oral formulation. So you're going to use your IVs, step them down. I think the only thing about it that I'm pretty aware of is the potential for QT prolongation. And like any antimicrobial, your, your concern regarding C. difficile is certainly there as well. We know that unfortunately with every antimicrobial agent, some have that risk for C. diff. And now that it's gone from being a hospital-acquired infection to community-acquired as well, it's really important that we counsel patients on when antibiotics are necessary and when they're not. And the other big thing with it, very similar to most of our other common agents, and it was really compared to the macrolides in these studies, it was the same thing, was the GI side effects were the most common. And definitely, uh, it's usually that five to seven day course in those patients. And the big thing with most is these new agents, it's gonna be cost. And if I have a patient who needs this antibiotic, nothing else is appropriate, then it may still require that we go through a prior authorization procedure. But it's really important for us as clinicians to be a patient advocate. And if they need this agent or need any type of specific agent, that we really try to get that for them based upon their profile, their risk, and their complications. 
I think half the battle is just keeping up with what's new out there because it's just really hard to do for every disease state that we manage. Maybe we could talk a little bit about amatocycline. Have you, does your hospital have that on formulary? Have you seen that being used? I personally have not seen amatocycline or not had the need to use it. Uh, it also is one of our newer agents just recently got approved. It actually is approved for both community-acquired pneumonia as well as skin and soft tissue infections. It is a derivative of minocycline, so it has very similar properties to that of the tetracyclines. It is going to be that bacterial protein synthesis inhibitor, so it does tend to be bacterial static, but may have cytal properties with some patients. But it also can be given IV or by mouth. One of the nice things about it is, is a once-a-day once dose. So definitely in that patient will worry about compliance. It's nice for them to take that one day a dose versus trying to take something two or three times a day. And it easily could be started out IV in the hospital and then transitioned to oral or been using the oral just there in the outpatient basis. It's also nice because it also doesn't require any renal dosing. And that's really important for a lot of our patients, especially those with comorbidities. I think it's helpful for our listeners today to know that these are out there. And while they may not be a product that we go straight to, it's also really good to know your options and to know what's available out there. And just, you know, definitely with those two and think about that looking at the studies, the thing to remember is they were shown to be non-inferior to our quinolones. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're better, but they're another tool in our toolbox that we can use if I can't use something else that we normally use because of an allergy or because of renal disease or because of even some maybe access. We know we saw during the pandemic there were some supply chain issues and we usually use this drug and now we start using this drug because of supply and access. And I think that unfortunately is going to be a problem going on out as long as we continue to have this pandemic. Maybe before we move away from the from this section, maybe what we could do is just talk for a second about the difference in the guidelines as well in terms of chest x-rays. So chest x-rays, CBC, CMP remain the minimum workup for people with a community-acquired pneumonia. But what's changed is that we're no they're no longer recommending a post-pneumonia chest film to document resolution. Are you seeing that being done outpatient and or in the hospital? I know you guys follow chest films, at least they did when I worked in the hospital as an ICU nurse, but are you seeing people kind of getting away from those post-pneumonia chest films to document resolution? I think so. I mean, we're definitely in patients who are having no improvement or having worsening. We're still seeing those. But yeah, you're not getting people getting chest x-rays every day as long as there's clinical improvement. You know, and the dumb thing is the chest x-ray is great, but it doesn't tell us everything. And really, it's important to look at that clinical picture. And just like the guidelines reflect, that if my patient's doing better, why get it? Just follow their clinical resolution and knowing that they may still have some radiographical evidence for several days, though they're symptom-free, because sometimes that x-ray may be a little behind what the clinical picture is. Awesome. And I think that um, I think that's a really important thing to remember. And then just also for our for our listeners to remember that the guidelines now also say sputum's outpatient procalcitonin and serum lactate are not recommended for use on an outpatient basis. That they did go on to say, though, if a patient qualifies for low dose CT scanning, after you diagnose the pneumonia, if they've not had that low-dose CT and they meet the criteria for it, they ought to have that low-dose CT scan done as well. Because we've all heard stories of people who come in with pneumonia, and then the next thing we know, we're diagnosing them with a carcinoma. 
That's a really good point. And, you know, I don't deal with that as much in the inpatient or the ED setting, but it's really important that even for me, that I recommend patients, if they're high risk, that, hey, when you follow back up with your primary care provider, ask about this. And I'll sometimes put stuff like that in my discharge instructions. So hopefully that does get followed with, or even if I'm able to send clinical communication to a primary care provider, when we give them follow-up or what we saw their patient in the hospital. But patients need to be aware of this. And sometimes if we can plan to see with the patient, that may help translate that over to their clinician as well. And as you mentioned, chest x-ray is our most reliable. Uh, in some settings, we may also use POCUS. Point-of-care ultrasound has definitely been beneficial. Uh, we know that CT is the best, but not indicated in most patients. And as I mentioned earlier, just really, you know, remember the sensitivity of chest x-ray is not as great as other things. So going off of the clinical presentation, but we do know adding that chest x-ray to our clinical presentation really does help improve diagnostic accuracy. On an outpatient basis, there are a bunch of apps that I use when I see patients with pneumonia. Maybe we can start out by talking about apps that maybe you use in the hospital, and then we can segue into apps that I might use outpatient. Are there any that you found really helpful? They are, and there's some really good clinical tools out there. And I luckily, the, the EMR that we use at our hospital, a lot of these are built into it. Or for certain chief complaints, it triggers this, or I can go pull them in. Probably the most common app that I use on my phone is MD Calc. I also use UpToDate because my hospital has access for me. But there's some really good tools out there that I can use. And we'll talk about some of these clinical decision tools that we really use and identifying who's high risk or which patients are more likely to have complications or which patients really need to be on the ICU setting versus in the med surge setting or even can be managed outpatient. And there's most of these are free. Uh, MD Calc is one that you can get for free. Uh, if you have access to up to date, it's even really good because it gives you lots of the evidence that backs these up. But definitely there's some several cl clinical decision tools that can really guide our treatment. And we know that these tools don't, you know, prove everything right or wrong, but they really help augment what we're doing. And several studies have even shown that using these clinical decision tools, they're just as good as our gestalt. But they do give us some supporting evidence to go, hey, this guy really should go to the hospital versus I think this patient's safe to be managed outpatient. And especially if we're having that conversation with our patient, hopefully we're doing that shared decision making that we can use this to sometimes help, you know, sway a patient one way or the other. That patient that I really think needs to come in and they're like, oh, I can't do this. I can't afford it. And sometimes when you start showing them the numbers like, hey, here's your risk of having a severe complication from this, that may help guide us and guide that patient in the right direction as well. I love MD Calc. It's one of the apps that I use so much because in MD Calc is a, a, a CURB 65 score. There's also the pneumonia severity index. And I actually will use, for instance, the, the CURB 65. I'll document it in my note, just like you said. And I'll write this patient's CURB score is zero or one. This patient has good home support. They're drinking, they're eating. I feel comfortable managing them at home. If their CURB 65 score is a five, their chances of dying from that pneumonia are 30, is 30% 30 in the next 30 days. So I will put that in my note and say, I'm going to transfer this patient to the emergency department for probable admission and maybe even ICU admission at that point based on the high level of that CURB 65 score. So if people haven't used that. I love that app. The other one that I use is the PSI. Do you ever use that, the pneumonia severity index or maybe even smart cop? I'm not sure if those are two kind of apps that you use or calculators within your apps. 
Uh, yes, so I've used both of these, or actually all three of them sometimes depends. And I think it's important for us, as you mentioned, what these tools actually do for us. So the CURB-65 score really estimates mortality risk and really helps us determine, is this patient going to be appropriate for an inpatient or outpatient treatment? And as you mentioned, the higher their score, the higher their risk for mortality. And so if I've got somebody who has a zero or one, that patient's low risk and probably can be managed outpatient. And one of the important things, as we mentioned with outpatient care, is they always need close follow-up. But that patient who has a higher score, that person has a higher risk and probably should be at least managed inpatient and gives us that risk for mortality. And one thing I've sometimes run into with um, my community practice is when I call the hospitalist for admission, I start the presentation off with, hey, their CURB-65 score is this or their smart cop score is this. And that just takes all the argument out of them if you ever work in that setting, because now I've got a tool that tells me hey, this guy has a high risk. So the CURB-65 score looks at this, those five areas. It's their mental status. I do have to have some labs. So I have to have their urea, uh, but then I have to look at their respiratory rate, their blood pressure, and their age. And age greater than 65, that person's already got at least one point there because they're higher risk. But it definitely can risk, hey, this guy's probably okay to be managed outpatient versus inpatient. Yeah, I, I find them so helpful. And then, you know, as we may have mentioned, the American Thoracic Society, as well as the IDSA, really recommends that we use a valid tool in addition to our clinical judgment when determining the course of action for this patient. So if I'm using uh, the PSI, which is probably recommended to be better than the CURB-65, but it involves a lot of stuff. I've got to have a lot of data to calculate the PSI, and I may not be in a place where I can do that. And it goes into much more detail and requires a blood gas and a lot more chemistries that we may not always have available. So that's why I use the CURB-65 or the Smart Cop is what we're going to use. And as you mentioned, the Smart Cop, that tool is really to help us identify those people who are going to be at risk for ventilatory support. So it's important for us to know what this tool does. And is this going to tell us, hey, this patient's safe for inpatient or outpatient? Or is this patient going to be at risk for complications and need ventilatory support? And I think it's really important that when we use these tools, we need to know what they're indicated for. And they all have strengths, but they also have some weaknesses. But luckily, most of these have all been validated in several studies and have definitely been useful in determining that patient and guiding our care. From my end, I think that there's a couple of really important take-home messages. And one is that there's an increasing role of viruses in community-acquired pneumonia. It's hard to know, is it viral or bacterial reliably outpatient? So we certainly are going to be treating these people with antimicrobials oftentimes. But what I think is really important is you know what the antibiotics are that are recommended and why they're recommended. And when you've got people who qualify for pneumococcal prevent, uh, protection with a vaccine, make sure your high-risk people are immunized against pneumococcal disease or carriage of that pneumococcal disease, because I think that can really go a long way. We've seen what the advent of some of these vaccines has done to the prevalence of these different bacteria. So I think it's really important that we are keeping up to date with these guidelines and that we're recognizing that while viruses play a role, bacteria has to be covered, but making sure you're choosing the right antibiotic not the one we've always done, but the one based on the evidence for the right amount of time and at the right dosage. 
those are some really good points to make and things I think also important to add uh, is that we'll sometimes do antibiotic rotation. So we may say for the first three months, six months of the year, we're going to use these agents and then we may rotate. And then we especially do that in the hospital setting, trying to re really limit reduction of this resistance. And this a lot of this goes back to our antibiograms that I mentioned earlier. But it's important to keep it with the data. The Choosing Wisely campaign has really focused on the overuse of antimicrobial agents in multiple areas and definitely has shown that, hey, not every patient needs this. Let's really have that discussion with our patient, you know, and sit down and discuss with them and give them the evidence and the information they need to know that, hey, this is viral, then let's do this. Or let's watch it for a couple of days. And that close observation is really important for some of these patients as long as they're not high risk and as long as they have follow-up care. And that's something that really challenges me sometimes times working in the ED is that I can treat a patient, but I'm like, hey, you need to follow up in two days, but where are they going to follow up with? And hopefully you have a way to either get them into some type of follow-up clinic, or if you have the ability to see them in your own practice, but follow-up is really important. Sometimes that watch and wait is all they need, but that follow-up care is really good, whether that's just simply, hey, let's give you a phone call in 48 hours and see how you're doing, versus let's physically bring you in and let's just see you again. And as we mentioned earlier, that we're just looking for clinical improvement. Clinical resolution is what we're looking for in most of these patients. And that may just be simple as just a phone call or an office visit without any diagnostics. Well, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. This has been really an awesome conversation. And uh, I thank you, Dr. Gooch, for spending the time with me. And thank you to all of you who have taken the time out of your busy schedule to, to listen to this podcast on the management of patients with community-acquired pneumonia. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Wendy and Michael, for sharing your wealth of knowledge on this extremely important topic. It's been a great segment. Your dedication, your passion, and your experience really came through. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. If you want to learn more about community-acquired pneumonia and earn continuing education credit, visit the AMPC Center at amp.org forward slash CE Center. The CE activity on community-acquired pneumonia with Drs. Wright and Gooch is linked in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. Mm -hmm.